Well, one of the most challenging things about being a pastor is deciding what to preach every week, especially on the big Sundays, like Christmas and Easter. Now, don't get me wrong, there's no lack of material in the Bible to craft sermons from, but when it comes to preaching sermons for special services like Christmas Eve and Good Friday and Easter Sunday, you kind of feel limited to those passages that especially address the, the birth and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And there are only so many of those, and if you stay in one church 20 plus years, like I've had the privilege of doing here, you feel like you run out of fresh sermons. And so you resort to recycling old ones that you preached already, and that's the only time a pastor hopes nobody remembers their sermons. For some reason, I had a particularly hard time landing on a text to preach this morning, and so after mulling it over and over in my head, I decided to just borrow someone else's sermon and preach it. Now, before you accuse me of plagiarism, which, by the way, is a serious issue in the church today and has led to a growing number of pastors being disciplined and even getting fired for re-preaching other people's sermons and uh, acting like they were their own. It's called plagiarism, which is a very real temptation in this information age where there's so many sermons available online. In fact, there are, there's actually websites where busy, under-the-gun pastors can go to download sermon ideas Outlines, quotes, illustrations, even the actual sermon itself. Well, let me reassure you, I didn't find this sermon on Sermon Central or Sermon Audio or YouTube or Facebook, and I didn't rip off one of John MacArthur's sermons or a John Piper sermon or an R.C. Sproul sermon or a Steve Lawson sermon or a Chuck Swindoll sermon, and I definitely didn't rip off a Joel Osteen sermon. I actually found this sermon in the Bible. In fact, it was the very first sermon preached after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended back to heaven. It was the inaugural sermon preached on the opening day of the church of Jesus Christ, which makes it the first recorded sermon in the history of the church. And even though it was the first sermon the preacher had ever preached, God used it mightily in the lives of thousands of people were radically transformed as a result of hearing it. I'm referring, of course, to to the sermon that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost that's recorded in Acts chapter 2, and I invite you to take your Bibles and turn there with me, Acts chapter 2, and let's just read the heart of the sermon as we begin. Acts chapter 2, verse 22 through 36. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Peter preached, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus of Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of God this man and put him to death. 
But God raised him again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope because you will not abandon my soul to Hades nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and have received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. I thought of titling today's message, Plagiarizing Peter. But that sounded a little dramatic. And so I chose to go with something much more understated, like a sermon about the resurrection. I mean, that's what you're expecting today, right? That when you come to church on Easter Sunday, you, you expect to hear a message about the resurrection. So here you go. Here's a, a, a sermon about the resurrection. I think you could actually put that title on most of Peter's sermons, as well as the other apostles' sermons that are recorded here in the book of Acts, because the resurrection was the focal point of apostolic preaching, because it was the resurrection that had transformed them from weak cowards hiding out in the upper room to bold witnesses who turned the world upside down for Christ. I agree with John Stott, the great British expositor, who is now with the Lord, he said this, quote, perhaps the transformation of the disciples of Jesus is the greatest evidence of all for the resurrection. I mean, think about it. Before the resurrection, the disciples had all abandoned Christ. Even Peter, the boldest, strongest, and most courageous disciple, had denied that he even knew Christ. They were scared, they were disillusioned, they were depressed, they were defeated, they had lost their dear friend, their great leader was dead, all of their hopes and dreams of overthrowing Rome were shattered, their visions of reigning with the Messiah in Jerusalem had vanished like a mirage in the desert, their promising movement had come to a, a tragic end, their revolution had failed, their great cause died with Christ on the cross. But then they got word 
that he had come back to life. That he was alive. And for 40 days after Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to the disciples 10 different times before his ascension to convince them that he truly was alive and more importantly, to commission them to tell the world that he had died and rose again and whoever repents of their sin and confesses with their mouth Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God, what? Raised him from the dead, they will be forgiven and saved from the wrath of God. And so the book of Acts is really just a record of how the apostles fulfilled Christ's commission through their preaching and teaching. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. Luke records here, the first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had by the Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his sufferings by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. And these disciples, these apostles, as Luke refers to them, followed the pattern of preaching the gospel that Jesus had laid out for them in the Great Commission. Most of us are familiar with Matthew 28, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. My favorite rendition, if you will, of the Great Commission is found in the Gospel of Luke. And I wanted you to turn back there because I want you to see something with me in Luke chapter 24. And again, Luke wrote the book of Acts. Of course, he wrote the Gospel of Luke, so it's really Luke part one and Luke part two, or Jesus part one and Jesus part two. So we need to see the connection here between the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Notice in Acts, or excuse me, in Luke chapter 24, verse 44, at one of Jesus' appearance, appearances after his resurrection, this is what he said to the disciples. Luke 24, 44, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And of the 24 sermons that are recorded in the book of Acts, there's no better example of how the apostles sermons mimicked the very words of Jesus in Luke 24 than Peter's first sermon. Why do I say that? Well, because number one, he he helped people better understand the scriptures. Number two, he explained that Jesus was the Messiah who died and rose again three days later. And thirdly, he called people to repentance so that they could be forgiven for their sin. 
And when it was all said and done, 3,000 people were saved and the church of Jesus Christ was started. Not bad for your first at bat. Right? Rookie preacher. Right out of the gate hits a grand slam. Well, obviously it was not uh, Peter who gets the glory for this sermon. But we should ask ourselves, what, what made Peter's sermon so impactful? Well, obviously God chose to bless it with amazing results, but setting that aside, I think there were three reasons why it was so powerfully used by the Lord. Number one, it was Bible-based. Number two, it was Christ-centered. And number three, it was application-aimed. In other words, it was rooted in the Word, it was riveted on Christ, and it required life change. And if there was ever a sermon for a preacher to, to plagiarize, tongue-in-cheek there, of course, or more accurately, to pattern their sermon after, it would be this one. And I want you to see with me this, this morning three components, crucial components, of a convicting, change-inducing sermon that God can use to lead people to repent of their sin and believe in Jesus Christ. Three crucial components of a convicting, change-inducing sermon that God can use to lead people to repent of their sin and believe in Jesus Christ. Number one, use Scripture. Use Scripture. And I think the first thing to notice about Peter's sermon is it's jam-packed with Scripture. Just survey all the way back, starting in verse 14, all the way down to verse 36, and you'll notice there that there's all these capital letters and italics, phrases and sentences and even paragraphs in italics, in large letters, which we know is an indication that Peter was doing what? What was he doing? He was quoting from the Old Testament. And in this sermon, Peter expounded several texts from the Old Testament. Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32. Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. Psalm 132, verse 11. And Psalm 110, verse 1. And what's so ironic to me about this is if there was anyone whose personal experience would have had an impact on others, it would have been Peter. I mean, talk about a guy who could tell some amazing stories. I mean, he, he could have people kind of eating, eating out of the palm of his hand, right, with the stories about when he, when he saw this and when he experienced this as he lived those three years with Jesus. And yet he chose to stick with Scripture. Why? Well, he tells us in 2 Peter chapter 1, Verse 16, he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. 
So he's referring to the transfiguration. And he was one of the three privileged disciples who got to see Jesus pull back his flesh, if you will, and his glory be revealed, who he really was. They saw who he really was in all of his glory, and they actually heard the audible voice of God coming down from heaven saying, this is my son. But listen to what he goes on to say. So, we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. You say, what is this prophetic word he's referring to? But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. He was talking about this thing right here. This this is a more sure word than hearing the audible voice of God. And so Peter didn't place his confidence, nor did he want anyone else to place their confidence in any of his inspirational moments that he shared with Christ, but he wanted them to place their confidence in the inspired scriptures. And he knew the best way to to impact others wasn't through experience, his experience, but through the exposition of the word of God. The, The power to save is not in your words or my words, it's in God's word. God promised that he would not allow his word to return void. He didn't say that about our words. There's a lot of things we say that come back void. And so when we're sharing the gospel with others, we need to make sure that we quote or, or read the scriptures a lot. Because what the Bible has to say is, is, is way more powerful than anything you or I will ever say. The writer of Hebrews, chapter 4, verse 12, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I'll never forget when Kelly and I were first married, we moved into our, our first apartment a studio kind of loft apartment in Las Flores Place, right behind an IHOP, that was important, um, in Santa Cruz, California. And our first neighbor who, who lived across the alcove, if you will, we, we'd walk out on our patio and there they were and there, our doors faced one another. And, and so we began to get to know this guy and and, and really had a burden for his soul and wanted to share the gospel. And so we would talk from time to time as we would bump in each other at the mailbox or at the pool. And, and uh, so one night we decided, let's have this guy over for dinner and, 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 and really have an extended conversation about the things of the Lord. And so we were having dinner and, and, and I'll never forget it. It's like it's, it was yesterday in my mind and I'm, I can see that guy sitting here to my right and, and we were just conversing about the things of the Lord, talking about spiritual things and, and, and he was just very relaxed, very comfortable as long as we were talking 
to one another kind of on the same level. And I could tell things really weren't making much progress. And so I said, hey, do you, you mind if I just read something from the scriptures, from the Bible? Can, can I get my Bible and read something for you? And so I went and grabbed my Bible, came back and set it at the table, and I began to read Romans 1. Well, if you know anything about Romans 1, you could tell the atmosphere changed immediately. And you can tell he was no longer comfortable. In fact, he started to get very convicted to the point where he said, hey, you know what? I got to go. I don't even think we had dessert yet. And he just up and left because he was brought, it was clearly he was brought under conviction by just simply me reading the scriptures. An even better example of, than that is in Luke chapter 24, you remember when Jesus appeared to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, they were leaving Jerusalem, they were discussing all that they had experienced in, in the previous week and, and, and trying to get their mind around what had actually happened. And Jesus came up uh, upon them and began to walk with them and listen to them talk. And he said, what are, you, what are you guys talking about? And he said, well, some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the woman said, but, but him they did not see. And they were talking about this, the Jesus, they said Jesus rose from the dead. They didn't recognize him, of course. And he said to them, oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets, that, in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And in verse 27, he says, then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. Even Jesus himself used the scriptures to exposit himself. And then remember the response when their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished and they turned to one another in verse 32, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? And so if you have opportunity to share the gospel, because the majority of you will never preach a sermon, but... I think all this applies to every one of us in this room because we are all witnesses of these things. Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the most part of the earth. That wasn't just talking about the disciples. The Great Commission applies to us as well. And so when you have opportunity to, to share, the Christ, share the gospel and witness for Christ, use the scriptures, stick with the Bible. The second crucial component of a convicting, change-inducing sermon or gospel presentation is to focus on the person and work of Jesus Christ, to focus on the person and work of Jesus Christ. And I want you to notice how Peter quoted Joel really as part of his introduction, if you will, this, this really, the sermon, if, in my Bible, the title Peter's Sermon is over verse 14, not over verse 22. So really, verses 14 to 21 are sort of like an introduction. And if you remember what was going on, the Spirit of God had come upon 
the, the disciples in the upper room and they spilled out of the upper room and they began to proclaim the gospel in, in all sorts of, uh, uh, of different languages that they had never learned uh, so the gospel could be heard by, from all the people that had come from all over the world to Jerusalem and so they could hear the gospel in their own language. And the people were amazed at what was going on and they're saying, what does this mean? But others, verse 13, were mocking and saying they are full of sweet wine. They're drunk. But Peter set the record straight. He said, taking his, says, but Peter, taking his stand with the 11, raised his voice and declared to them, men of Judea and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words, for these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. It's only 9 a.m. in the morning. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit and they shall prophesy and I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come and it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Notice how Peter quoted Joel up until the place that Joel gave an invitation to salvation, which was a perfect launching point for Peter to share the gospel with this crowd. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And Peter went on to explain to the crowd exactly who this Lord is and what he requires of those who want to be saved. And essentially, Peter stated that the man that they had crucified less than two months ago had come back to life and now he was in heaven, seated at the right hand of God the Father, offering forgiveness to all those who would repent. In other words, Jesus is the Messiah who came to save you by dying on the cross and rising again from the dead. And so really here in verses 22 through 36, we have the heart of the sermon. And it's a description of the four basic stages of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Notice he, he mentions, first of all, the incarnation of Christ. Verse 22, men of Israel, listen to these words, Jesus the Nazarene, he was a, a man born in Nazareth to a man named Joseph and a, and a woman named Mary, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst just as you yourselves know. So God became a man. And dwelt among us. And the way we know he was God in a human body is because he could do all these miracles, which only God could do, which proved that he was the promised Messiah. So he starts with the incarnation, but then he moves quickly to the crucifixion. Notice verse 23, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. 
And here Peter answers the age-old question, who killed Jesus? Who killed Jesus? Well, before accusing the Jews, Peter lays the crucifixion at the foot of God. Notice he says, this man delivered over by God, by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. In other words, God did it. The crucifixion was all part of God's sovereign plan. In eternity past, God determined that he would kill his own son on a cross to pay the penalty for our sin. But at the same time, he also providentially ordained that the Jews and the Romans would be the human instruments who would carry out his divine plan. In fact, the disciples understood this because they prayed this in Acts chapter 4 when they were arrested and told not to preach any longer about Jesus and the resurrection. In Acts chapter 4 verse 27, they prayed this, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servants Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And so they understood that this was all part of God's plan, but it was also, it didn't in any way let the the Jews and the Romans off the hook. Notice it says, you nailed to a cross. This man, who was delivered over by the predetermined plan and war knowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And so Peter implicated both the Jews who instigated Christ's death and the Romans who actually crucified him. And and you could see this if we had time to just trace this throughout the book of Acts. The apostles often blamed the Jews for crucifying their Messiah. Which, by the way, wasn't a popular message. But the fact is, even though the crucifixion was divinely decreed by God, God still held the Jews responsible for the murder of his son. It's similar to what Jesus said about Judas, who betrayed him. In Luke twenty-two twenty-two, he says, For indeed the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. In other words, this is all part of the plan. But woe to that man by whom he's betrayed. Judas was still responsible for giving up Christ. Now obviously there's a tension here that we feel between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And these are the kinds of verses and sections of scripture that just kind of make our head hurt a little bit. We, we, we can't make sense of it in our minds. It's, it seems illogical but we know that there's no contradiction in the mind of God. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are greater than our thoughts. And so we rest in the Lord and we trust the Lord. 
And so Peter talked about the incarnation of Christ. He talked about the crucifixion of Christ. But then notice, thirdly, he talked about the resurrection of Christ. Verse 24, but you nailed him to a cross, but God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. And again, as I mentioned already, the main theme of the apostles' preaching was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they mentioned it over and over and over and over and over again in all of their sermons that that was kind of like the main point, that Jesus is alive. Well, why was he alive? Well, because God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony, not just of Christ's death, but death in general. Not only could death not keep Jesus in the grave, Jesus conquered death. He conquered sin. Just as God had promised and just as God had planned for a son to do and you cannot thwart God's plans. You cannot thwart God's promises. And the resurrection really was the greatest evidence that Jesus was the Messiah. And notice how Peter went on here to use the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, particularly the Psalms, to show that Jesus had risen from the dead just like the Bible prophesied that the Messiah would. And he starts in verse 25 by quoting Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence." So he's quoting David here, but notice how he responds. In verse 29, brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. In fact, we could go right out here and, and we could, I could show you his tomb. In fact, we could dig it up and find his bones there. We all know that. And so the fact that his tomb still exists proves that David was dead he was buried, and so he wasn't referring to himself. He, he was writing about the Messiah. He was speaking prophetically, not autobiographically. And then he goes on to quote Psalm 132, verse 11, and also make a reference to 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant in verse 30. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. God had promised David that a descendant of his would reign forever on his throne. Well, how's that gonna happen? Somebody's going somebody's gonna to have to come along that never dies. 
And of course, this was a prophecy that the Messiah would never die. And again, Peter's logic here is Jesus is the Messiah. That's why he rose again. He's that, that, that promised one that, that God promised David in, when he made that covenant with him. And verse 32, notice he says, this Jesus God raised up again. It's him we're talking about. To which we're all witnesses. So Peter affirmed that that, that he, along with the rest of the 120 who were standing there with him, were actual eyewitnesses that Jesus had risen from the dead. In fact, you may may remember uh, really the theme of Acts, the book of Acts is is Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my, what? Witnesses. Both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And shortly after that, well, that was what Jesus said right before he ascended to heaven. And they went back to the upper room and, and the first thing Peter did after they prayed was say, hey, we got to pick a replacement for Judas. And it's interesting, the criteria that they used, Acts chapter 1 Verse 21, therefore it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. In other words, not just anyone will do here. We got to find somebody that actually was a witness, an eyewitness of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And so Peter talks about the incarnation of Christ and the crucifixion of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, but notice he also talks about the exaltation of Christ. In verse 33, therefore having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. The fact that Jesus ascended back to heaven where God exalted him by giving him the place of honor and authority as right hand was the testimony of all the apostles, by the way. Paul talked about it often. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. That famous text where Paul talked about Jesus coming down from heaven laying aside his glory, if you will, and, he said, and, and, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed in him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those, under, those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This was a, a theme. This wasn't just Peter's theme. This was all the apostles' theme. But he says, hey, let me, let me prove this to you. I, I know I could just say, oh yeah, Jesus is in heaven. Well, how are you going to know? How are you going to prove that? You, you could say that and there's no way to test that. I can't go to heaven to see if he's there. Well, let me, let me, let me prove to you, Peter says, that he has been exalted to God's right hand in heaven. He said the first proof is the pouring out of the Spirit. He says we've received the 
promise of the Holy Spirit. And you remember that when Jesus was here on this earth, he, he told his disciples, hey guys, don't get comfortable with me being around because I'm, I'm leaving. And they're like, whoa, 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 time out. What are you talking about? We don't want you to leave. We like you here with us. He says, no, you don't understand. It's better if I go because if I go, then I can send to you who? The Holy Spirit who can help you and lead you into all truth. And so he promised in John chapter 14 and John chapter 15 and 16 that he would send the Holy Spirit. In fact, he repeats it again in Acts chapter 1, verse 4. He gathered them together right before he ascended. And he said, wait for the Father in Jerusalem. Don't leave. Don't leave Jerusalem. Stay there. He says, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And of course, verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, which they just experienced in Acts chapter 2. That's what Peter was preaching about, giving a defense of. When the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost and, and his coming was manifested visually and audibly, there were sounds of rushing wind and there was tongues of fire and there was speaking in other languages and they, they all saw it. They, they all heard it. John chapter 7, verse 38, Jesus said, He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water, but this he spoke of the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So guess what? The fact that the Spirit came means that Jesus is glorified. So he uses the pouring out of the Spirit as exhibit A. Also, exhibit B is the prophecy of David, and he quotes Psalm 110, verse 1. In verse 34, for it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says... We all know, we already said that, he's, he's in the grave, David's in the grave. He didn't ascend to heaven, but he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Again, David couldn't have been referring to himself, since he's, he's not exalted to God's right hand, but Jesus has, because that's who David was talking about. Verse 36, he says, therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has, been ma has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So, again, the next time you get to preach a sermon, I, I mean, share the gospel, perhaps, Make sure you clearly explain who Jesus is and what he did. That he is God in human flesh and he died as a substitute for sinners and he came back to life three days later and now he's exalted in heaven. That's the essence of the gospel. That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, which you may be familiar with 1 Corinthians 15. It's the resurrection chapter. 
I mean, the, 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 the chunkiest chapter in the whole Bible about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How do you start that chapter? How do you launch into that chapter? Well, listen to what Paul says. This is 1 Corinthians 15, 1. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and which also you stand, by which also you were saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Here it is. For I delivered to you as of first importance also what I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That's the gospel in a nutshell. The life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Peter stuck with the scriptures. He focused on the person and work of Jesus Christ. And then finally, he called people to repentance. He called people to repentance. Notice verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? That word pierced there means to prick with a sharp point, to to sting or maybe even to stun. Think about a stun gun, right? The the, the crowd that had gathered out of curiosity to know what this strange phenomenon was. What's going on here? Nine in the morning, people talking in all sorts of languages and the the winds blowing and seeing flames coming down from here. What's going on? Now they stood there stunned. The double-edged sword of God's word had just sliced through their hardened hearts and pricked their consciences and, and, and they were experiencing now another manifestation of the Spirit. They had heard the Holy Spirit with their ears and they had seen him with their eyes, but now they felt him in, in their hearts and they were under the Spirit's conviction, which was one of the, the, which was one of the main ministries of the Holy Spirit, according to the to Jesus in John 16, verse 8. And when he comes, Jesus said, the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me and concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer behold me and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. And so they are overwhelmed with conviction. They were guilty having realized that they had murdered their Messiah who God had raised back to life and exalted to his right hand in heaven and surely what that meant to them is that God was going to judge them for this heinous crime that they had committed against his son. And it's like they didn't even wait for Peter to, to finish his sermon. I mean, he didn't even, didn't even wait for the invitation. They're like, hey, preacher, time out, man. I get it. I'm convicted. You cut me, man. What do I got to do? Those of you that enjoy studying church history, you may be familiar with the anxious bench. This was um, kind of came into being during the the revivals of the, I guess, uh, 16th, 17th century, the, the Great Awakenings, when Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield and Charles Finney were traveling around preaching 
And God was just blessing their ministries tremendously. And so people would actually, you know, in the middle of the sermon, cry out, stop! Especially when Jonathan Edwards was talking about us being dangled over the fire like a spider when he was in, in, in his sermon, the, you know, the, the, the sinners in the hands of an angry God. They're like, stop! We can't take this anymore. But there was a bench that they would put up and it became popular that if you got convicted in the middle of the message, you just got up from your chair from the pew and you came and sat on the anxious bench. And that was an indication that you were convicted, that you were concerned about your spiritual condition. You weren't even waiting for the invitation. You were coming ahead of time. And so they cried out in desperation with with this anxious heart, if you would, what shall we do? Is there anything we can do about this? Any way we can fix this? Any, any, any way we can make this right? And Peter said, glad you asked. Repent. That's what you can do. Peter said to them, repent. Repent. Which in the original language, the word metanoia means change of mind. And it's just not a change of mind, but I think that change of mind, whenever our minds change about something, it also results in a change of life, does it not? So he's essentially telling him, you need to change the way you think and you need to change the way you live. It's it's basically a reversal of what you've been believing and how you've been living. It's more than just feeling sorry for your sin. It's, it's turning away from your sin to follow Christ. And so Peter was telling them to, they, they needed to change their view of who Jesus was. He wasn't just this, this, this son of a carpenter or some religious imposter or some blasphemer. He is the son of God who died and rose again and is now seated at the right hand of God. And you rejected him, now you need to receive him. And again, if we had time, we would, you could trace this theme of repentance throughout the, the book of Acts, and, and, and this was at the core of the apostles' gospel message. Repentance is a requirement for salvation. You say, I don't like the sound of that. That sounds like I got to do something in order to be saved. Well, are you okay with me saying that faith is a requirement of salvation? You have to believe in order to be saved? So why are you not good with saying I, you need to repent to be saved? You're okay with the believe to be saved because you know that faith is a gift from God, right? God grants you faith. Ephesians, what, 2 verse 8, salvation is a gift of God. But don't miss this, and the, the apostles got this, that repentance is also a gift granted to us by God. Chapter 5, verse 31, he is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Notice that, to grant repentance to Israel. Chapter 11, verse 18, when when reports were go, uh, 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 going around that Gentiles were getting saved, 
And the Jewish believers were scratching their head going, my, we didn't see this coming. And so Peter reported to them that they had received the Holy Spirit just like the rest of them. And they says, this is uh, chapter 11, verse 18, when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God saying, well, then God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Repentance and faith are both gifts granted to us by God. So he says, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will, be, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So he commands them to be baptized here, not so that they could be forgiven for their sins, but because they had been forgiven for their sins. Some say that that verse teaches that you have to be baptized in order to be saved. Well, we know that baptism is simply an outward demonstration of an inward decision that we've already made at some point in the past to repent and believe in Christ. And in this context, he was talking to Jews who didn't typically get baptized. That's what Gentiles did to wash off all that dirty Gentile dirt so they can identify with us Jews. God's people. But Peter was requiring that these Jews be symbolically cleansed, if you will, of their defilement and publicly identify with Jesus Christ as their Messiah. And so by being baptized, they would be disassociating themselves from Judaism and converting to Christianity. And this would likely result in them becoming an outcast among their family and society for following the one that the Jewish religious leaders had just crucified for impersonating the Messiah. And the fact that they would be willing to get baptized was evidence that they had truly repented. And he said, if you do that, you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, I think you know that we receive the Holy Spirit the moment we are saved, right? And it's a little janky here in the book of Acts, right? It's like, you've got to get saved or people received the Holy Spirit before they got saved or after they got saved, before they were baptized, before they got baptized, right? It's, it's, it's just, so the pattern, it, it kind of straightens itself out throughout the book of Acts that you receive the Holy Spirit the moment you get saved, right? You get saved, you're baptized with the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and then you get baptized. And then notice he says here, for the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off. In other words, this applies to all of the Jews and all future Jews and Gentiles. Those are the ones who are the far off. As many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. And here's a reference to God's elect. All those that God has chosen from eternity past to be saved. And again, here's the balance, right? We started in verse 21. It shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But we also need to understand that we could never choose, we could never call um, out to God in faith, repentance and faith, unless he had not already called us. God chooses us so that we can choose him. 
And notice verse 40, and with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Again, that was Luke's way of saying, hey, I'm just kind of giving you the gist of the sermon here. This is not the whole thing. Peter was long-winded like most preachers, right? So I'm just giving you the, the salient details here. But he said, be saved from this perverse generation. That word perverse, scolios in the Greek, again, where we get the word for scoliosis, a curvature of the spine. This was a, he described that generation who had murdered the Messiah as crooked, twisted, and corrupt. And he was calling them to escape God's wrath that was about to fall on that present generation who had crucified his son through the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. And verse 41, so then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. When the sun had risen that morning on the day of Pentecost, there were 100 or so followers of Christ hunkered down in the upper room, and by the time the sun had gone down, there were over 3,000 baptized believers flooding all over Jerusalem. And ever since this sermon, the lives of millions of individuals have been transformed through a personal relationship with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. People from every walk of life, from every country in the world, from every religious background. The question this morning is, are you one of them? Have you experienced the transforming power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ in your life? And if you haven't, the question is, do you want to? You say, what do I have to do? You simply need to repent. Repent of your life of sin and turn in faith to Jesus Christ, believing that he died to pay the penalty for your sin and rose again so that you could be forgiven for your sin and you could be a devoted follower of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this rookie sermon which was used by you to accomplish amazing things. And I just pray that you would use this sermon that Peter preached again this morning to accomplish great and mighty things. If there's someone here today who's not a Christian, they've yet to experience the resurrection power, Lord, that you would grant them repentance and faith, that they would truly commit their life to follow and obey Jesus as their Lord, as their Savior. And Lord, would you also accomplish great and mighty things in those of us who, who are saved, who, who are believers, in that as we go out this week, we have the privilege, the responsibility to be witnesses of these things. Help us to be faithful. Help us to be bold. Help us to be winsome as we share the good news of salvation with the lost. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.